Welcome to the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast. With me today is Colin Farian, co-founder and analyst at MJ Research Company. Thank you very much for joining me today, Colin. Thanks for having me, David. All right, before we get started, if you could please like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. We'd also really appreciate it if you subscribe to our newsletter. Make sure you get it in your inbox first. All right, Colin, how did you get into the cannabis industry? Uh, sure. I uh, grew up in Minnesota and um, actually started my career at Craig Helm, which is a uh, boutique research-driven investment bank, um, and was lucky enough to get a job uh, for a long-short hedge fund um, called Intrinsic Edge, um, who actually starts participates a little bit in cannabis right now. Um, and at the time that I was working for Intrinsic Edge, I was doing a lot of event-driven analysis on public equities, kind of deeper finance academic stuff. Um, but we did have an opportunity I think it was back in maybe 2015 to uh, evaluate or underwrite rather um, M. Hardeen, which is one of the first cannabis consultants to come into the industry. And back in that day, it was uh, pretty ground level. Uh, M. Hardeen had a cultivation and a storage locker here in Boulder um, and had a lot of hopes and dreams. But at that point, I knew that I wanted to, from my investment analyst uh, role, generate a little bit more empathy in the industry that I wanted to focus on. And I could tell at that point that cannabis is going to be the secular trend that had a ton of existing demand and a lot of opportunity. And so I moved into operational roles, uh, first doing computer vision for IPM on cannabis crops and cultivation and got a bunch of ground level experience there and then moved into a position with Urban Grow, who's a picks and shovels uh, cultivation designer. And I led their uh, multi-state operator accounts um, I'm now a uh, co-founder and analyst at MJ Research. We provide institutional analysis for uh, capital allocators, excuse me, capital allocators uh, for, in the uh, investment industry for cannabis. Okay. What are cap allocators? Sorry. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, capital allocators, and I said institutional research, but it's re- research for institutional capital allocators. So usually it's family offices or institutional funds that want to put um, money to work. Uh, in the cannabis space. And that, you know, ranges from all the way from retail dispensary to tech, all the way down to, uh, you know, cultivations and farms. Okay. Um, what is it that you learned at Urban Grow and uh, at Deep, I believe it was Deep Green too, that, you know, you want to bring into uh, your new business? I think that having empathy for the, the cannabis industry, and what, it was actually one of the reasons that I was attracted to your show in the first place, Having empathy in the cannabis industry is, is somewhat rare, especially among the investment community, because more often than not, you have uh, people with money and people with experience and being able to find a hybrid between those two who can uh, both direct where capital should go, how money should be invested, um, as well as having a understanding of how systems should be run within the cannabis industry um, is, is a really great opportunity, but it also helps to identify the sustainability of these bigger companies. So instead of maybe just looking at a filing for, um, you know, say one of the bigger multi-state operators understanding where margins have been, where management said margins are going, you can take a look inside of like what's under the hood literally and understand that, okay, well, if they've acquired this new growth facility and it's a triple stack and they're probably going to have to retrofit because their controller is a little bit underburdened, um, or excuse me, uh, that, they're a little bit underburned on the controller system, um, then they probably have a certain amount of capital investment to make before they can boost margins in the future. Okay. What was it that drew you to cannabis? 
that's a good question. I think a, a number of different things, uh, starting high level, having a secular growth industry uh, for our generation, that's, it's really a generational opportunity in that sense. I mean, you have, as mentioned before, a ton of existing demand that's been proven for centuries, uh, almost centuries um, by the illicit market. Um, so you're growing into that, but then also on a secular basis, we've, we've now proven after last year that the industry is at least somewhat um, recession resistant. Um, so it has a lower beta than a lot of other industries um, that you might uh, maybe correlate on the CPG side of cannabis. And so um, that from a monetary aspect, and then from more of the softer aspects, um, being able to see, you know, I, I'm living in Boulder, Colorado. So um, seeing Charlotte's Web and the story back when the Stanley Brothers had their National Geographic show in 2013 or whenever it was, and the, the healing properties that came from cannabis was also super, super motivating. So both sides of those are really important. Um, what have the last seven months been like since starting your own shop? Um, it's, it's been fun. Um, I think that we found a way to fill a gap in cannabis by providing, um, we do very deep quantitative research that pairs with, um, with detailed operational evaluation. So what's different than what you might find in the Southside Investment Banking Report, we're looking at unit economics, we're looking at turnover of the team, we're looking at organizational structure. Um, and a lot of those kind of combine to evaluate these companies that are in hyper growth mode and trying to acquire assets as quickly as possible. And so having my own business and being able to um, you know, basically choose the research that I want to do and provide that to the, the investment funds in the industry has been, um, I mean, it's my dream. Do you get any pushback um, for the stuff that you, uh, you know, for the analysis that you provide? Uh, is there a great demand for it yet? Or is it still sort of a up and coming uh, need in the market? It's, it's probably a mix. It's, it's up and coming in the sense that there's a, a relatively tight group, tight and small market that is looking for this deep, deep research. And it's generally folks that are allocating millions of dollars, at, at least, um, into the industry. Um, so the market will definitely grow. There will be more appetite in the future uh, as we get more, uh, you know, passing through descheduling of cannabis will allow more institutional funds to be able to participate in the industry. Um, but at this point, we've been lucky enough to find um, a mix of, as mentioned, family offices, investment funds, even uh, a handful of corporate development teams that find our research helpful for evaluating, you know, where they want to invest or acquire next. So pretty much any company I've ever spoken to in the cannabis business is just getting ready to fundraise again. So it seems like an embarrassment of riches of people that are looking for capital. Uh, is that creating too much noise in terms of where it's smart to sort of put your money? Yeah, I mean, it certainly adds to our value proposition. Um, there, and I've, I've, of course, I've, I've heard this on, on your show as well and, and, and plenty of other, uh, I understand that a lot of areas in cannabis require an extensive amount of capital to fund these businesses into cash flow uh, or even just to, to, to scale and as quickly as they'd like to. Since there are less institutional folks to invest in the industry, 
it makes it that much harder for these companies to be able to find that, that right match of the investor that's going to fit for their strategy. Um, so that's exactly our goal is basically doing the dirty work of that due diligence and, and both combining those people with the, the right investors, um, but also guiding these companies into where they should scale next and investors where they should invest next. Well, uh, that type of information as to where these companies should scale next, that's where I wanted to jump into or uh, kind of pick your brain a little bit. Uh, and I wanted to start with the type of facility. So when people are looking either at expanding or just starting in, you know, from zero, what types of facilities should people be looking for? I think it comes down to three decisions say, or three variables that you have to look at. So you have your climate, uh, your growing strategy, and then your budget. So depending on where you're building, right? Say you're, if you're in Cleveland, Ohio, and you're getting 120 days of sunlight and you've got wildly varying temperatures and a relative humidity that, you know, will be over 80% throughout a good chunk of the year, then you have to look at your facility models are basically all the way down to only doing indoor. If you do a greenhouse, you're going to have fire drills nonstop. You're going to have low quality flower um, and outdoor is not an option, but if you are in Snowflake, Arizona, for example, to contrast that, you're going to have, I think, just under 300 days of sunlight, uh, very consistent temperatures. Uh, it's a dry environment. And so a greenhouse is a great option. So climate should be your first priority. Um, the, the growth strategy, this is where you have to look at what do you want to be when you grow up? So if the market, and, and this is kind of a mix between do you want to grow, what do you want to grow, and what is the market looking for? So if you think there's a place in the market for a value brand flower, then, and you have an area where you could have either a greenhouse or an indoor grow, then you should probably go with greenhouse because you're going to have a lower cost of production. It's going to make it easier to compete. Um, and then finally is budget. So after you've evaluated both your climate and your growing strategy, do you have the budget to actually scale into the facility model that you want to uh, be able to have? And um, you, if you don't have enough money, to scale into the facility that you have, you have to build smaller. This, there's uh, an interesting dynamic in the space of a lot of folks cutting corners and trying to build bigger for the time being, and it sets you up for sets you and your team up for failure. Uh, what are some of those failures? I mean, um, not passing your COAs is probably the you know the number one failure. But then, even longer term you just, you're, you're creating a business that the moment that you have a shakeout in the industry and shakeouts happen when you have, you know, this, the whole cannabis industry on the cultivation side is based on supply demand curves. And so the moment that that supply curve um, gets a little bit higher and you have that much more competition in the space, especially among that same facility model that you're competing with, whether it's an indoor greenhouse or outdoor, uh, if you haven't put enough money into your facility to have the systems and processes that you need to be competitive, you're going to go out of business. You're going to have to sell your assets most likely. Um, and I mean, as bad as not passing the COA is, uh, selling your assets is much worse. What is, uh, sorry, when you're saying not passing the COA, uh, can you describe that? Certificate of analysis. I'm sorry. It's uh, yeah. So it's passing the, 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 the pathogen, uh, it's testing the, passing the lab testing that you have to take to be able to sell your products into resale or wholesale. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so talking about facilities, how often, I mean, you must see it a lot where people are trying to be too big, too fast. And is it just 
are they so pie in the sky with their ambitions that they can't think about starting on a smaller scale? Yes, is the short answer to that. <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's so attractive to want to turn on this revenue generating machine immediately. And more often than not, you can't blame the operators exclusively because you've got investors in that group that want to see their ROI turn as quickly as possible. Um, the thing is, though, if you phase slowly into your facility and I mean, there's there's plenty of benefits, but ultimately, if you phase slower into your facility, you're going to be able to generate a strong reputation with your wholesalers and retailers that you're selling into. So all of your vendors, you're going to have a better uh, sense of culture among your team because you're not battling fire drills day in, day out. And then on a long term cost of production basis, you'll be just as efficient as you would have been if you would have scaled all the plants in the facility immediately. Because if you do that, equipment's gonna break, you're, you're gonna have PM all over the plants and you're gonna have to figure out how in the world you're going to um, uh, remediate it and then sell it off. And then uh, at the same time, you're gonna be you know, selling uh, uh, mid-grade quality into retailers where you wanna have much better reputation. That first impression is very important in that situation. I wanted to ask you about whether or not to retrofit or build new. I've heard from a lot of builders build new, so it makes sense. Uh, do you have the, uh, do you have the same opinion? If you can build new, yeah, if you can build new, um, it's possible to run a successful retrofitted facility. But what, what most folks don't understand is that if if you're working in a retrofitted facility, it's usually some former industrial manufacturing use, maybe just industrial use in general. We'll leave it at that. But you're going to have pathogens embedded in the wall. You're going to have um, in the infrastructure, unsealed walls um, and plenty of other issues. And it's going to create, again, more problems for you down the line. And as we've talked about um, already in this conversation, the key is to decrease the variables as much as possible. So you're not you know, fighting fire drills uh, nonstop. And so that's probably the most effective way to do it is just build from dirt. Mm. Well, I mean, you could just, you lean into it, you know, uh, it has a very aromatic start, but it has sort of like an industrial lubricant finish. That's, that's a, probably a very fair way to justify retrofitting <laughs> besides <laughs> the dollars and cents. Um, so as you're creating these new facilities, what are some of the best practices that people should adhere to? What are some of the common pitfalls that they, you know, stumble over? The... Yeah, best practices, um, and I'll try to think of like, there's, there's a lot of like the best practices that are common that are, you know, institute a, a task management program uh, that is not a clipboard. Um, so, you know, thinking like four years ago, there used to be, if you had to harvest, you had to bring your plant in to scale, um, to, to weigh, and then you had to write down the weight on a clipboard and then the, the tag number, and then you had to implement that into metric at the end of the day. That's a thing of the past. You've got Artemis, you've got uh, Trim and plenty of other platforms. I'm not going to try and name all of them because I'll forget. Um, but that's a really easy way to automate uh, an important task. I think maintenance scheduling is probably one of the more uh, understated uh, value generating opportunities. Equipment breaks and it's very expensive in cannabis cultivations. And if you have a maintenance schedule that you're completing every single week, with your team, you're going to decrease your downtime and save a ton of money um, over the entire year. And then I'd say maybe the last 
probably most important practice is going to be making sure that you're, you have a director of cultivation and assistant director that knows your fertigation system inside and out. These are really complicated systems and they make all the difference in the world if you know how to operate them efficiently. And if you don't, this comes back to you're going to have flow rates off. You're going to have um, nutrient uh, uptake is going to be off. Um, it's just going to create a ton of problems. Do you see, is there a lot of predictive and preventative maintenance in the industry, or is that still uh, a need for most people out there? That's still a need. Um, there's a lot of folks that will tote being predictive or preventative. And there's no doubt that having even just proactive planning around things like equipment and IPM is very, very important, but there aren't a ton of systems that will help you get there immediately. And that's primarily because to have a predictive or uh, maybe like, yeah, predictive systems like you have in like the more industrial use cases, like the DG digital brought to market, you need a ton of data to be able to uh, create those scenarios. And we just don't have that yet in cannabis. That's what I was, my follow-up was, is it just that the equipment is too new? I mean, a lot of the people I'm talking to, they're just doing product launches within the last six months, and it's a completely new category. Yeah, it's exactly it. It's, it's both new and fragmented. So when GE launched Predix and they had predictive maintenance for their turbines, I mean, they were one of two turbine manufacturers, and they had all the data in the world to be able to integrate. Um, but now you've got, you know, thinking about even environmental controllers alone, there's got to be, you know, 10 vendors that have a decent amount of market share and it gets lower and lower as you get into individual parts and pieces. So talking about equipment, what equipment is the most important at first when you're starting out? How do you budget for it? And how do you make sure you know how to use it appropriately? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Equipment that's most important is going to be your HVAC, your fertigation, and your lighting. Um, And I think people will argue what order that goes in. I'll see if I can justify why I think it's in that order that I just stated. So your HVAC is gonna be, I would argue your most important because if you have uh, an HVAC that doesn't have a high enough load to be able to um, uh, to create standard environmental throughout all of your grow rooms, Uh, you're going to have a ton of issues on your hands and you're going to fix them by putting a bunch of mini splits around your facility over the summer. And it's just going to be a band-aid problem that you're constantly dealing with. And retrofitting an HVAC system is about as expensive as installing one. Um, I would budget roughly probably $100 per uh, gross square foot. So square foot across the entire facility, but that can range probably like 60 to 130. Um, the fertigation, and I, I didn't really um, explain what this is. So for listeners that, that aren't in the industry or you know, um, don't have a great sense, the fertigation is a mix of your fertilizer and nutrient um, uh, injection system. So basically it goes from your head house and sends both water and nutrients all the way to your plants across the entire facility. Um, this is really, really important. Um, and I would you know probably about as important as your HVAC. Um, it's tough to budget for your fertigation because there's a ton of variables that could all the way down to how many zones do you want of flower to plant spacing to sensors you want integrated. And even if you want to include like reverse osmosis or, um, or reclamation skids, but I would say at a, at a very high level, call it 
$25 per canopy square foot, and it can range dramatically in either direction. Um, and then the last one would be lighting. Um, LEDs, yeah, I think generally come around 65 bucks per square foot and HPS is probably about a third of that cost. Um, lighting's, it's really important because it's gonna be the driver of your yields at the end of the day. But I, I think it's, it, it, it's often touted as being one of the most important or being the most important piece of equipment. And I think that a lot of folks could largely get away with, if, if you're low on budget, um, spend on your lights, last of those three because LED costs come down every single year and there's not, it's not a huge issue to go and throw in HPS for a couple of years, wait until you're cash flowing and then find ways to justify the financing of LEDs after the fact. Who's typically making the call as to what equipment is specified in? It's usually a mix of, it depends on the, where the facility is at in its life um, or the operation. If it's a brand new facility, it's usually the whoever will be the, the general manager, the director of operations of that facility. Um, that person often doesn't have a ton of growing experience, so it makes it a little bit trickier of a conversation to have. Whereas if you're looking at someone that's looking at expanding or phasing, it'll be the director of cultivation who generally knows exactly what they want um, for the most part. It helps to have a little bit of education, but they're more sophisticated from a growing standpoint. And so um, if you are a director of operation and you're building a new facility, I always recommend go find a commercial grower to help you with that process. Even if you're going to an outsourced design or consulting firm, it helps to have someone that's gonna guide you through the process that's done it before. True, because don't you typically wind up with everything that you spec'd in, then you hire a director of cultivation that says, we gotta lose it all. Yes, uh, it's, it's, it's a tricky scenario uh, because on one side, you want to have a facility that can uh, be supported by as many directors of cultivation as possible, just given it's a, it's a very high churn position um, for various reasons. They're sought after. They tend to be underpaid uh, and overworked. And so you want to have a person, ideally, you have a director of cultivation that has skin in the game on your business that's there from before you even uh, uh, bid out the design process, because then that person's gonna be in there for the long run um, and they're gonna be able to help you locate every piece of equipment. And that includes when we talk about the complications of, of getting a fertigation system. I mean, the decisions around reverse osmosis or reclamation or you know, flower zones or the number of ingredients you're gonna use for your plants, it really requires a grower to come in and say like, this is what we should have as opposed to, you know, the director of operations, just eyeballing. What are some common delays or operational issues that people can expect in a new facility? And then let's start there in a new facility. Yeah. New facility delays. I would probably start with, a lack of capital or mis misbudgeting is going to be the fastest, the most common delay. Um, you have situations where you decide that you want to have a, a slightly nicer light, or maybe you under budgeted for your HVAC. Um, and so you have to go back to your investors or the bank or whoever it is that you're getting the capital from. And that takes time and it pushes everything back. The, the other big delay issue is, and I think that I'm, I'm trying to think of more of items that maybe are understated, but 
if your lead times do not match your installation bandwidth or the uh, building stages, you're going to create a ton of headaches and delay your entire process. And meaning if, if you're going to build a stacked cultivation and your lights show up ahead of your benching, you're going to have to either have those lights ship back or you better have room for a ton of lights to sit somewhere in your facility while you get the benches shipped and then installed. Excuse me, and then installed. Um, so those are probably the two of the most common ones. So after everything's up and running, uh, what is sort of, in your opinion, what is a good uh, amount of time to be operational for a startup to m- feel confident that they're going to make it? At least a year. Yeah. At least a year. I mean, you're going to get through five harvests during that period of time. At the end of one year with a startup, you should have the full, the entire facility uh, populated with plants um, running relatively smoothly. But I think it, this comes back to even the, one of the, the other dynamics that's very common in the industry is you see these directors of cultivation that come in for right before the industry is built, or excuse me, the operations built, and then they only last two grow cycles because they've been pushed to scale the, the facility as quickly as possible. And in that situation is not their fault. It's the operator's fault. So when you talk about, you know, getting something to a sustainable level, proving your strategy, proving your processes, it's at least a year and it could be arguably closer to two. So after the one year, the two year point, do the operational issues, do the common delays, do those, how do those change? they should subside meaningfully. And when you talk about the delays in, in, a, in, a, in a cultivation that's already operational, it tends to be equipment issues, um, pathogen pest issues, uh, and then um, manager turnover. Those are the, the biggest items. And so if you figured out a way to avoid those, you, you're either on a decreasing amount of downtime down um, you're either experiencing a cre- decreasing amount of downtime or you're going to stay relatively steady for the rest of the life of the cultivation. Because if, if you haven't found a way to prioritize, excuse me, something like a maintenance schedule or um, properly incentivizing your team, um, and then it's probably not going to happen after that two-year period. And those are problems you'll likely continue to see. With these staffing problems, is there any are there any tips you could offer in terms of how to staff a cultivation team so that maybe they hang around? (laughs) I think, I mean, incentivizing cultivation teams by giving them an equity interest in the operation is the most effective that I've seen. You know, there's, there's, you know, really two ways you can give them equity interest or you can incentivize them with cash. Um, I've seen, you know, all the way up to some of the biggest MSOs will provide their lower wage employees uh, massages on a biweekly basis, which I thought was like an interesting and, and, you know, a really actually great idea for if you're working in this, you know, 200,000 square foot facility. Um, but from an organizational structure, I think you have to make sure that your head grower is not working six days and 100 hours a week. Um, that's all too common and tends to be uh, one of the primary drivers of burnout. The other aspect is to have a director of cultivation with at least one assistant grower so that all of the burden is not being taken on by one person. 
Um, other than that, I think it's also important that you have at least one dedicated IPM person, ideally a team, so that you're not using the same grow team to go and scout that you are using to, um, to, to prune uh, the plants. Um, and yeah, I think those are probably the extent of the list. You had mentioned that cultivation is traditionally underpaid. Is that something that you see evolving with the industry? Yeah, and I, I mean it from the perspective of a head grower. Um, oh. I think that um, some of the, the lower wage uh, cultivation staff are generally paid above minimum wage. I think MJ Biz did an article on that relatively recently. But um, so that I think, and which is great, but we'll see what happens as wages rise and all the macroeconomic aspects of that. Coming back to the director of cultivation, they tend to be underpaid, but that will change just because as the industry gets more and more competitive, the, the churn of these cultivation managers is forcing operations to pay up for the people that can perform. And I don't want to, um, to translate that every director of cultivation is perfect and that they are, uh, you know, the most, there, there are some, you know, certainly that you know, may not be the best asset to your team. And so it's, it's, it's also really important to figure out how to vet them appropriately, especially for your cultivation model, because where they may have been fantastic working on a Priva in a greenhouse in California, they may not be as effective working on an Argus um, in an indoor facility in uh, Cleveland. So the cannabis industry is unique in that there's great demand to be in it. There are a lot of people that want to work in the industry, but there's still a skills shortage because it's a lot of unskilled labor. For those people that want to get into the industry but have a career, is cultivation the best place to sort of land or be trained, or are there other aspects of the industry that might be more fruitful in terms of a skill set? That's a good question. I, it's, it's tough because in, in cultivation five years ago, you saw a lot of people that were out cutting their teeth and learning the ins and outs of that business. More and more often now, you're seeing folks with horticulture degrees that have worked in food processing or pharma facilities, and it's become quite competitive, especially on a general manager down to um, uh, middle level manager in the cultivation. So it, it's, it's not easy. Um, I would say that if you don't have experience in cultivation, you don't necessarily have experience in, in agriculture, it, it's probably a little bit less risky to go and work in uh, more of the operational role in the back office of an operator. Um, but it's not to say that it can't be done. I, I, I certainly have close friends that have worked their way up at MSOs um, without college degrees. Uh, so it's, uh, I don't want to prevent anybody from, from taking that risk because I think it's a, a great environment to be in and an industry that you'll have a job for a very, very long time. Um, but it certainly is more competitive than it was even just a couple of years ago. So let me just start one more question with, so apparently that's going to be the running theme here. So comma pause. Um, I heard, well, flour has traditionally dominated the industry as the product category, but edibles have been sort of up and coming as well as other new product categories. Do you see uh, flour ever losing the top spot of being the dominant product category? And what are some of the other product categories that excite you uh, in the space? Yes, it's, 
you know, it's, it's a crystal ball question, but my, my take is that I don't expect this industry to be especially different than CPG. And so whereas flour is at the top spot right now, and you have probably 80% of consumers prioritizing flour over any other product because they like, uh, they prefer to consume by, by smoking. I expect that that changes because smoking is not nearly as common um, when you look at other consumption methods in CPG. And that's, as you noted, David, like the edibles gaining ground, beverages are coming off of a very small base and they are gaining ground, but it's still very, it's, it's early to tell. And I think that the price points are, are, are too high and the dosage is, is also probably too high for, mo for the most part. I would expect that, um, I, I think that drinks will be probably the, the primary form of consumption, just because when you look at the closest um, comparable product is likely going to be alcohol or wine. It's tough to expect that you would have, you know, a, a drastically different consumption method than those products. Um, but I do have a lot of faith. And I think that right now edibles are the most consistent. Uh, they're most affordably priced and the best way for someone that isn't a, a, a consistent consumer to dip their toes into cannabis. Um, whereas I do think that smoking can be a little bit more intimidating, um, especially as you get into kind of the waxes and oils um, and then beverages, just as mentioned on one side, they're, they're quite expensive. And then the other side, I mean, we're still, th this trend of having beverages that are 25, 50, 100 milligrams per can is going to scare a lot of people away from that consumption method. Do you see the cannabis industry over the long term mimicking the alcohol industry in terms of we have the big domestic operators and then we have sort of the craft shops. I do. I wish I had a better contrarian way to look at it than that, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but I, I really do think that, and we're watching California very closely right now to see if that it's, it's the most mature from supply side dynamics, meaning that, they have the, the most um, flexibility among supply in the largest market. Um, and they have outdoor, indoor and greenhouse, um, similar to Colorado, but in the sense it's on a much, much bigger scale. And so that'll be the first, there'll be the first uh, maybe signs of evidence of if the craft industry really does emerge. And I think we're starting to see it with the, the cookies and connected on the high end. And then you've got a couple of the, the mid level ones, and then a lot of this outdoor is going straight to distillate. And so I would expect that it builds, you know, it's very similar to alcohol in that sense. I'd like to get back into cultivation. Uh, could you talk best practices about phasing plants in a new facility? Yes. Um, phasing plants into a new facility. I think we, we touched on that just briefly, but starting with room, one room is key making sure that you have your, your, your controller, your equipment, everything set up so that you're operating as if you were at scale. So that means you can have your emitters running in your flower room. Maybe don't send nutrients to all of them necessarily. So you can maybe turn off those cycles on your controller, but operate as if you had everything running, but only have plants in one room. And you keep a very close eye on those plants. You get used to all of the new technology platforms and the complex systems that you're using um, whether it's a pump uh, or um, uh, pump or irrigation or even um, working with your batch tank or injection rack. Um, but then you take that and I, 
you work into the continuous cycle as you get into that first harvest. And so you hit the first harvest, populate the second room, and now you do, I mean, we generally, I would generally recommend doing one room per harvest at a time. You can scale faster if you're feeling confident, but the, the goal is to, and even on a monetary side, the goal is to be able to use the cannabis that you're selling from the one room to cash flow back into supporting the second room, whether it's hiring the necessary employees that you need, um, uh, justifying um, the overhead to go and turn on those lights, um, or even um, investing back into if you're buying clones versus using your own moms uh, in, a, um, in a nursery. Um, what are common areas that you can improve operational efficiency? Uh, is it just, the, is it as simple as the lights? Yeah, the lights are, are a great way to improve efficiency. I think that um, lights are a great way to improve efficiency, especially if you're starting with HPS and you want to move to LED. But more on, on the process side, too many cultivations don't have SOPs. And when we talk about maintenance schedules, those fall into SOPs. You need to have consistent processes for every single task that you do. And I know it's, it's so boring to make them, but they are a lifesaver. The moment that your director of cultivation wants to go on vacation for a week, mm -hmm. you have the team asking, how do we do task X, Y, and Z? And you can point them to the SOPs where they can go and figure it out um, themselves. So I think that's a big one. The, the other is, is uh, technology automation. So um, you know, whether you're going to be integrating sensors into your room to be able to uh, monitor the environmentals um, in real time and identifying microclimates to um, even like what we talked about the task management programs, you know, keeping people off of metric is going to be the name or whatever the compliance platform is. It, there's a, a handful of them. Um, and I don't want to use metric as a scapegoat, but keeping them into more user-friendly platform will decrease the errors and then decrease the amount of time that people have to go back and redo mistakes. And again, this whole game is about decreasing the number of variables that your team can run into on any given day. Because if you talk to any cultivation, their biggest headache is always, you know, I wake up in the morning and I, wanna, I wonder what kind of issue is going to pop up that's going to sidetrack my entire day. Um, less variables means less issues. So there it is again. You talked about uh, having a lot of experience on the ground uh, at these facilities. What are some of the more interesting things that you've seen as you've been out and about in the industry? Um, seeing how, how monetary decisions translate into operational processes is mm -hmm. probably some of the more interesting stuff. Take stack cultivations. They're quite popular right now. Um, and I, I understand why they're popular. From a monetary standpoint, you can increase your yields. Um, you can increase your yields to a multiple of whatever you're starting with. Uh, and you're doing that at a cost that's relatively low because benching and integrating the lighting is not relative to what you're gonna get out of that, that increased yield. It's a, it's a relatively low um, um, capital cost, but you face a problem of if you have two, three, four, five stacks of flour in your room, you have to think about how is your team gonna get in and take care of those plants or scout them or 
check the emitters or test the airflow. And often that stuff just doesn't get done when you put in a stacked facility. And so well, the point being is when you make that financial decision around how you think something's going to generate more revenue for you and you don't think about what it's going to do to your team and the processes that you've you know, spent so much time and effort developing for your team, um, you can have some serious downfalls, you know, where it turns into, you know, whether it's like a pathogen that goes, that, you know, comes from the top row because nobody's scouting it and infects the rest of the plants um, to a bunch of clogging that, you know, prevents you from having meaningfully higher yields across a bunch of your plants because emitters weren't being checked. Um, so I think that's probably the, the most interesting thing I've learned is just, yeah, having a sense of um, how financial decisions affect operational processes. How, how often, often are you at a facility, facility and you have, and you have to tell, to tell yourself, yourself uh, I just, I just don't, don't think it's going to work? work. <laughs> uh, I mean, not that much anymore. Um, okay. Back in, you know, when, when I was first getting into facilities, uh, I think it was 2017, and you could tell that there was going to be, you know, there were, you know, benches made by wood um, and um, a lot of um, uh, like hydropon fully hydroponic grows. So like water is flowing, the roots are in water, which is a recipe for, uh, you know, pathogen issues. Um, now at this point, it's more of the sense of how long will a cultivation last given the forecasted supply dynamics. So if you're in an area where there's outdoor is allowed and you have a ton of competitors that are well-funded and well-built facilities and indoor and greenhouse, you have to be on your game in, in, and take processes seriously. Because if you don't, then you're going to be bought by the competitor next door and it will not be for a, a multiple that'll you know, allow you to retire. Um, and so that's, uh, yeah, instead of going out of business, it's more of the sense of, you know, how long will, um, you know, until they get taken over, which at this point is, is not especially often, but you can certainly tell when you go into places that, uh, you know, folks are showing up at 10 or 11 a.m. Uh, when the rest of the crew has been there since eight. What are the new technologies you see entering the market that you find particularly exciting or think could make a big impact on the industry? Uh, yes, new technologies. I think that starting with, with, well, I think tasking platforms I've mentioned. Um, so I think Artemis and Trim are probably the leaders in that. Uh, they do great jobs. They automate basically, you know, from putting tasks on the whiteboard or a clipboard into a computer. Um, digital fertigation is great. You have a lot of folks that are working on this. And um, I think most of the, like the, the higher end controllers have mobile applications and, um, and solid desktop applications. But um, if you look at like GrowLink, for example, they're doing, they're, ahead of the curve in creating an easy to use platform. And it can do some of the complex things that you might find from even either higher end ones, higher end controllers, but it's offset by ease of use. Um, the bells and whistles aren't nearly as important as consistency. Um, and I think that's understated in building new facilities. I would say that uh, sensors um, are also important and you're seeing some new development of sensors from a handful of folks, but Often when you're faced with the decision to get a sensor, it's an omni, omni sensor that you're getting with your environmental controller. And that means 
just one big sensor that sits in the middle of the room and gives you a reading around the environmentals of your flower room. Um, I'm a believer that it's important to understand microclimates in your room. So you should have sensors on all the corners and maybe a couple uh, in the middle. Um, and I think you know, these elevated signals um, and a handful of others are doing that quite well. And then I would say lastly, um, what I was working on with deep green computer vision, it, it's a hard problem to tackle. And there are a couple of folks that are working on this, but that will be the future of being able to understand when a pathogen's emerging in your plant um, well before the human eye could actually detect it. And it's a, probably a little bit early. I would say lastly, there are some interesting LED manufacturers starting to emerge. The, the FOES team has done a great job you know, both marketing and um, showing performance in their technology and being able to emerge as a leading player in LED among 50, maybe more players is uh, super impressive. So I would look for more around both the efficiency um, and performance of LEDs because that will continue to get better and better. To have successful computer vision watching your crop for path possible pathogens, how many cameras do you need in there? I mean, you need at least, I think folks generally think about it as you need one per bench. And so bench is, you know, uh, um, uh, four by four um, or four by eight rather. And if you're using RGB, which is just like the, the regular vision spectrum that, uh, that we have in our eyes, which is you know, all the colors that, that we see, um, it's possible to get there, but more likely than not, you need a multi-spectrum camera. And there's a ton of uh, debates from people that are much smarter than I am over how many multi-spectrum cameras, uh, spectral cameras you would need, because there's an argument that you can see through the plants and you can identify if you calibrate to the right spectrum, you can identify certain pathogens um, even with one camera in a flower room. Um, that might be possible. It's very hard to prove and it's still too early in that. Um, I've seen a lot of folks do computer vision well that have still struggled because the industry is just in such nascency that like, you know, and I, that's probably the, the, the only advice I'd give to, to cannabis technology, excuse me, cultivation technology, technology startups is you could have technology that returns the investment for your growers. It can be um, a, you know, a, yeah, a high value generating proposal, but think about the grower. They're just trying to keep their business running and they don't necessarily have time to institute a new technology or you know, integrate those processes. Um, when they're trying to just get flour out the door. So you have to be empathetic towards that, um, especially around what people are willing to pay. Uh, with this knowledge, intense knowledge of everything about from cultivation through operations, when, uh, when do you stop with the analyst and uh, set up your own grow? <laughs> um, I, I like sitting on Excel uh, and reading filings and, um, and shaking hands with uh, my friends in the industry. So I don't think that that will be in my near term, um, not to say that won't change. Uh, I definitely have a soft spot in my, in my heart for all things farming and agriculture. Um, being from Minnesota originally, spending plenty of time in, um, on traditional farming uh, land and in the processes. But um, 
for now, I'm, I'm more of a wait and see. To, uh, mm-hmm. I like to evaluate how some of these bigger players, especially that are emerging now, uh, whether it be Snowflake or Ventura County, uh, how they're going to uh, basically progress. And as you do get more of this commoditization coming into the industry, I think it's a great opportunity, especially as you go further east. Um, but at the same time, it's, uh, there's, there's plenty of risk to that operation as well. Yeah, I mean, it's the highest revenue generating or margin generating area of the operational supply chain right now, but that could change on a dime with a single piece of legislation. I, uh, what are your expectations for that single piece of legislation? When's that coming? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I specifically try and avoid any piece of policy analysis that I can. Um, I, I'll read Marijuana Moment every morning and, and digest from, again, from much smarter people than I am. But a lot of this is so binary that, you know, to take a position on it, uh, you're, if you're right, <clears throat> you're probably in consensus. And if you're wrong, um, you know, nobody wins. So I, I, I generally try and keep an, an arm's distance, hopefully soon. <laughs> very good. Well, Colin, thank you very much for taking the time today. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for having me, David. And thanks for uh, putting this show together. I think it's a really great informative, uh, informative content. And as someone that listens to a lot of podcasts in the industry, I think this is uh, definitely among the best. Um, and so I appreciate you doing it. Well, thank you very much for that and the soundbite that I'm going to market into oblivion. No. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, thanks again. Thanks, David. Uh, Before we let you go, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. If you could leave us a positive review, that would really help us out a lot as well. Also, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Make sure you get the podcast first. For Colin Ferry and I'm David Manti, and this is the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast. We'll catch you next week.